Hey, Haley. Yeah, Alyssa? Are you ready to change the narrative around women's sports? Let's do it. You're listening to Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski, and this is the Iron Women Podcast. Haley and Alyssa are longtime professional triathletes and coaches. Between them, they have completed more than 50 iron distance races and just as many 70.3s. Their accomplished careers include nine professional wins and one fastest known time. Haley, do I have to tell the listeners how many of those wins are mine? Nah, we'll keep that between us. The Iron Women podcast has a Patreon community which helps support our podcast. If you love the podcast, check us out at patreon.com forward slash live feisty. And don't forget to tell a friend. Now, let's get to the show. Look at us. We have that new intro. What do you think? I think it's pretty snazzy. I, I like mixing it up. You know, different times call for something new and uh, fresh. So I'm glad we freshened things up. And I'm glad we got Taylor involved. Our new editor, Taylor Mahan Rudolph, got to um, got in on the intro action. So I'm glad we got to bring her on as well. So we got that set this week. But what else have you been up to? What has been happening? Did it snow near you actually this last week? Because... I have a friend who is visiting Montana and I saw on their Instagram it was snowing and all I could think of was you. And I was like, oh my gosh. It might have. I feel like I, these days, the kind of snow you get is like a little like sleet snow that doesn't stick around. So it doesn't bother me too much. We've definitely had a ton of rain in the last week, which is great because everything is super green. But today was awesome. It was like really warm, probably in the seventies and it's, spectacularly beautiful and it reminds me why I live here all the time. And I have a, like a cherry blossom tree right outside my window and it is hot pink right now. It is so beautiful. So I'm, you know, I'm loving it. it. I can't, if there was bad weather in past days, I've already forgotten about it. So how are things in Charlottesville? Things are good here. It's, I feel like my life is pretty boring this week. I, I definitely have been, continuing to bake. I've been doing that baking challenge. If anyone does follow me on Instagram and I actually had two failures this week. I tried to make vanilla wafers and they, they taste fine, but they really were not the vanilla wafers that I was hoping I would be able to bake and like remind myself of the ones that I love out of that yellow box, you know? Um, so that was a fail. And then I tried to make the run fast, eat slow Snickers bars and, I just don't have the patience when it comes to the like chocolate coating when you have to melt the chocolate and then dip things and then it's like messy and you have to be so precise and patient and like how you're handling things and I'm just like globbing it on. So that was also a fail. But the good news is that both of those things taste good. Um, So that's pretty much the excitement that's been happening in Charlottesville. But I have been itching to get out of Dodge a little bit, which like obviously we're in a time of pandemic. So like traveling, I can't go like travel like I normally would. Right. But, um, I am going backpacking this week. So I spent a lot of last week getting like my supplies I need and making sure there's no holes in my tent or my sleeping pad and things like that. And Matt and I are going to go out into the woods for a few days this coming week because things restrictions have been lifting up a little bit. And, um, it seems like, like a good time to kind of pretend we're traveling, but 
we're not really that far from home, but we'll be in the woods. So it'll be good. Sometimes you find out really cool things are right in your backyard when you just look for them and you don't have to go too far for an adventure. So I'm excited to hear more about that. I do have one movie recommendation if people Ooh. are staying home and need a, a fun trainer movie or just a sit around movie. Um, Alyssa, have you seen Troop Zero on Amazon Prime? Actually, yes, I have. Oh, I don't even surprise you. What'd you think? <laughs> I thought it was so cute. I loved it. Oh, I thought it was really cute too. I actually watched it on the trainer and I expect, did you ever see Troop Beverly Hills when you were growing up? I did. So this is slightly different. Very di Well, I thought it was like, a, so I went into it thinking it was a remake for like current times of Troop Beverly Hills, which should be my million dollar idea. If anyone out there wants to do that for the current times, I think that could be a huge blockbuster hit or at least a hit on Netflix or something. But second best was, I, so I was very confused as this started going because it's nothing like Troop Beverly Hills, but it is a very, very cute, like heartwarming, great, good to watch in a pandemic time movie. I, I would rank Troop Zero above Troop Beverly Hills, in, <laughs> in my opinion. So quite, quite far above, but maybe that's just my kind of thing. I thought it was a really good movie. So there's my, my one uh, contribution to anyone's trainer entertainment needs for the week. I love it. So I'll, I'll tell everyone about um, how the backpacking trip goes next week. And you can, our listeners can let us know if you guys would rank Troop Zero or Troop Beverly Hills, which is higher. And then we can let Haley know that next week. So just write into the, the mailbag, ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com and let us know that. And Haley, we do have a mailbag question this week. But first, we want to say a huge thank you to our continued Patreon supporters. That's right, Alyssa. Our Patreon community is a group of, of supporters who support this podcast and all of the Live Feisty Ventures through financial support, um, as little as $2 a month helps us keep this kind of going, especially during the hard times when we haven't had races and things have been a little challenging over the last couple of months for, for many people, but for us as well. And so we are very, very thankful for our Patreon community who has kept us going and made us able to get on here every single week and bring you great stories. And if anyone does want to join our Patreon community and learn about some of the perks of joining, there are some perks. It's not just getting to listen to us every week, but there are some actual like uh, fun things at different levels. That website is patreon.com forward slash live feisty. All right, Haley. So I'll read the mailbag question that came in again. Anyone can send us your questions at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. This one comes in from Catherine, and she is curious about how we get our nutrition and hydration during our long run. So do we place it on our outdoor courses ahead of time? Are we running loops where we have like a base camp or an aid station set up? Um, do we carry it in a pack? She just hasn't quite figured it out. She has said she doesn't really prefer to carry bottles, so she wants to know what we're doing. And I, when I sent this one on to you, I was like, oh, I have a lot of opinions on hydration, but that's just because it's like an always changing or evolving situation. So how do you handle this, Haley? So moving to Montana, I, it was kind of a little bit of a shock because when I lived in Atlanta, I could kind of strategize on, on water fountains and where I could stop for water during runs. And in Montana, I don't really have that Liberty. There aren't really any public water fountains. So um, I, I actually end up running with 
several water bottles. I'll start my runs. I'll, I usually do either like an out and back course. That's normally what I'll do if I'm doing a long run. And I will sometimes start with like three water bottles, which I have like two in my hands and I stick one down my sports bra is usually how I do that. In the front and or the I'll back run of their sports bra? The front. Okay. <laughs> the front. And when it's empty, you can, I can stick it in the back of my shorts and it works. Mm-hmm. But when it's full, it's a little bit hard. So I drop them off. So say I was going for like a over two hour run, I'll get like 30 minutes out and I drop one water bottle and then I do another 30 minutes and I drop another water bottle. Then I run like whatever out and back. And then I pick, you know, empty that one, pick up the full one. And then the, the empty ones are easier to carry. It's just when they're full. So the first 30 minutes are kind of terrible, but after that it's, it's just great. And you have all the fluids you need and then you're not worried about cleaning out a hydration bladder or anything like that, because that's my problem with, with hydration bladders is that I forget to clean them and they get moldy and they get disgusting and water bottles are much easier to clean. So I agree. I think I kind of separate this question into like what you, you need to do for the workout. So if I need to do something with like pace work or if I need to be moving fast, which I would count as like, Ironman pace or faster work, um, then I, I would do something very similar to Haley. I would like strategize where I'm dropping a bottle so I know it's there and then I can like plan my route around that. Or I am like always doing loops. I'll do loops of like a two mile thing just so I can come around like my car and just swap a bottle out really quickly, that kind of thing. Um, I don't think I've gotten too much more creative than that for like pace work because in my mind it's just like even if it's boring I'm concentrating on the paces anyway I could be running like anywhere and it doesn't matter but if I have the liberty of just kind of going out for like a long time and I don't need to be hitting paces but I need to be carrying a lot of fuel because it's going to be a long time then I usually will wear like a hydration pack with a bladder um and I I recently actually have gotten some filter bladders as well, Haley. So like I have, I start with my like one bladder. And then if I think I'm going to need more than that, I have like a little handheld filter so I could re I could refill from streams and stuff, which is like, makes me feel very like one with the earth when I'm doing that. Um, and I haven't gotten any weird diseases yet. So I think I was going to say, you're going to feel real (laughs) one with the earth when you have like giardia and you're like one with the toilet, but (laughs) not, knock on wood. I haven't had, yeah. So I think the filter (laughs) is working, but you know, worst case, I just carry like a ton of water in that pack. And again, like if it's weighing me down a little bit, it's okay because I'm not really worried about the the paces and things like that, right? And I have all my snacks. I have all of that. Um, I will say that while I was doing Jarman's, I decided I was like over the backpack hydration system thing um, because I felt like when I was climbing a lot, I felt constricted a little bit and I was just over it. So I actually just recently ordered um, the Ultimate Direction like waste pack. And this is exciting. So when I first started doing trail runs, I wore like a fanny pack that had like the lower back bottle insert. So that was like, those used to be super, super popular. And I feel like they're making a comeback. And I think there's a reason why, because I think they've probably done some like redesign and now they're even more comfortable. So I just kind of ordered a new one of those, but I haven't had a chance to wear it yet. So maybe I'll keep you guys posted on what I think about the fanny pack aspect. But I think it just depends on, again, like how your goal for the workout and how much you can carry while still executing those things. Um, You know, you have to kind of weigh those, those options and see what will work best. But 
the biggest thing is just to make sure you are carrying it because even if you're frustrated carrying bottles and it's annoying, it's like way more frustrating to be an hour from home and be bonking because you don't have hydration or nutrition on you. That is the worst. I also sometimes, if you're doing a more urban run, I know right now it's probably hard, but if you do bring some money with you just in case to um, pop into a store, if you are bonking, sometimes that that will get you home. But um, And these days, I guess we also sounds, have to carry the money and the mask. I know, which I mean, I, I don't know. And maybe it is worth a backpack. I do have a lightweight backpack that um, I can put bottles in and run pretty comfortably. Again, my, my, I'm a lazy human. It sounds like from my answer here. And so I'm always thinking about what do I have to wash afterwards? Um, and, and so a lightweight backpack with some bottles in it. Yeah. There's a little bit of jostling, but hopefully that also reminds me to keep drinking stuff. And then the more you drink, the less jostling you have. And then you have a light backpack for the last part of your run. (laughs) Haley, I learned my nutrition cleaning tip at the Naval Academy. So we used to like, because we all had canteens when we were there. So it was like a thing. I mean, the canteens would get disgusting. And so we had to like spend time and it was like a group activity to clean your canteens. And you, they would literally fill this tub with bleach and water and you would go and, you know, just dip your canteen, fill it up. And then the canteens would sit with that like bleach water mix for, I don't know, until they told us it was done. And then you'd have to pour it out whatever. And it was always like, you always got this lecture. Don't forget that the bleach is in there because there every year there was some midshipman who would like accidentally drink the bleach. And it was like always this big story. So like that has literally been ingrained in my mind. But anyway, just a little bleach and water mix, Haley, is what you like just can make up. You drip it through your hydration system, whether it's bottles that are a little moldy or the camelback, like, you know, bladders or whatever. It'll, you know, let it sit in there for a little bit and you're good. You just have to remember to clean it like rinse it through after that. We did that with our snorkels at the University of Georgia. Maybe someone stole that from the Naval Academy, but uh, that is good advice. That is good advice. And it is always better to do it immediately after. It's just so hard. I'm so tired and I want to eat, but um, definitely good advice. Well, thanks to Catherine for that question. Hopefully she has some ideas after our little chat. And Haley, we have a great interview for people today. We have Abby Perkis as our guest for this week. And we had Abby on to talk to us last fall about women in adventure racing. We brought Abby back this week to discuss something more related to her day job. So Abby is an assistant professor of history at Keene University, where she also directs the school's history and pre-law program. She holds a joint JD PhD in history and specializes in post-World War II U.S. justice movements, oral history, and immersive teaching. Abby has also co-authored a book called Changing the Game, Title IX, Gender, and College Athletics, which is how we knew she would be the perfect person qualified to help us dissect Title IX. In early May, the U.S. Department of Education released a new rule on Title IX. This new rule is focused more on sexual violence, which is not something many of us think of when we think Title IX. Abby helps us explain why Title IX covers sexual violence and leads us through some history as well as the gender equality piece um, of sports with that in relation to Title IX. We talked to Abby after a word from our sponsors. Iron Women is proud to be supported by Form Goggles in 2020. Form Goggles are the only swim goggles with a smart display that delivers metrics like split times, distance, pace, and more. And it's built right into the goggle lens. You can also analyze your metrics outside of the pool with the Form Swim app because what triathlete doesn't love data? 
Head to formswim.com to learn more about the Form Swim Goggles and pick up the missing link to your swim bag. As triathletes, we should all be committed to fueling our bodies with products we are confident in. At Iron Women, Noon Hydration is our go-to. Committed to clean hydration, a clean planet, and clean sport, Noon Hydration shares our values and we are proud to use Noon Hydration on and off the race course. Plus, it tastes good. My favorites are the Watermelon Noon Sports Tabs, Citrus Mango Noon Endurance, and then warming up some Noon Rest before bedtime. Noon Hydration offers the Iron Women community a 30% discount at NoonLife.com with the code IRONWOMEN. That's N-U-U-N Life.com with the code IRONWOMEN. Hi, Abby. Welcome back to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, thanks for having me again. So we are here to talk to you today in the context of Title IX. And Title IX is a U.S. federal law that prohibits the discrimination on the basis of sex in any federally funded education program or activity. So most of our listeners are probably familiar with Title IX in the context of athletics, and we will discuss that. But the news about a recently released U.S. Department of Education rule focuses more on the context of Title IX and sexual harassment and assault. So what does Title IX have to do with sexual violence? Yeah, so, you know, when Title IX was first enacted, there was no mention or inference of the inclusion of sexual harassment or sexual assault in the law. And really, up until like the mid-2000s, we didn't hear about those two things connected. Um, At the origin of the law, when the law was passed in 1972, that lack of inclusion was in part because sexual harassment was kind of considered a matter of course in professional settings, right? It was just, you know, unfortunately, kind of what happened. um, And people didn't talk about it, or at least didn't talk about it publicly. Um, This began to shift a little bit in 1977 when we get a ruling from the D.C. Court of Appeals that um, workplace quid pro quo, so a supervisor seeking sexual favors from an employee in exchange for a promotion or something like that, is is viewed to, to be discrimination. Um, so we start to see that, that language linking sexual harassment to a civil rights violation. Um, and that same year, we see the same connection being made with Title IX. Um, when an appeals court held that harassment, this same kind of quid quid pro quo, excuse me, harassment was a form of sex discrimination under Title IX. Um, Schools weren't really viewing the law to be about harassment at that time, and the vast majority of Title IX claims were were grounded in what we think of, right? Athletic opportunity, academic opportunity. Over the next couple decades, we see in the United States a shift in how we think about sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, some of that comes from the um, Clarence Thomas hearings, appointing him to be a Supreme Court justice and the Anita Hill scandal. And we start to get this kind of public discourse about assault and sexual violence and also an awareness that more and more sexual violence and sexual harassment is not being perpetrated by a stranger, but rather by somebody that you know. Um, So we start to see these links between what kind of sexual misconduct looks like and where it's happening. Um, 
And Abby, can you, I guess, can you talk a little bit about then in that context, like how is reporting sexual assault to campus authorities different from reporting it to municipal police and where that distinction kind of lies? Yeah, absolutely. So this is kind of the same way we think about a civil lawsuit versus a criminal case. So in a civil lawsuit, the burden that the victim needs to meet is that they have to basically show that like there is more likelihood than not that a, that the violation occurred. Um, so basically 51%, the preponderance of evidence. That is the standard that's applied to um, Title IX and campus reporting. So uh, a person who is accusing somebody of sexual assault or sexual misconduct has to show by a preponderance of evidence that it happened. If they were to go to the police, the... Um, the standard would be really different. It would be um, essentially that it, you know, they had they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's possible for somebody to be found guilty of or found liable of sexual assault at a university, for instance, but not necessarily they don't have the, the sufficient evidence to show it in a criminal proceeding. On May 6th, the U.S. Department of Education released a new rule on Title IX, which, if signed into law, will, will require compliance from all federally funded schools, both K-12 and collegiate institutions, starting as soon as August 2020. So from what I've read, the new rule seems to favor the accused perpetrator. Can you walk us through a few of the main points? I have heard that preponderance of evidence, that part of it has been brought up as well. So I think that's part of these changes. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of that cultural shift that I was talking about earlier culminated in 2011 when the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights under Obama issued this public letter called the Dear Colleague Letter, which really hammered to colleges and universities that they needed to take immediate and effective steps to end sexual harassment and violence. And for the last nine years, that has been the guidelines that in educational institutions follow. They're not laws, but they are um, they are strong recommendations and they are what schools have been following. And that's what said preponderance of evidence. That's what said that it kind of cast a broad net for what constitutes sexual har um, harassment, sexual misconduct. This letter, or, or sorry, these guidelines that were released on May 6th really shift the balance of that. And one of the biggest things they did was to tilt the balance of evidence toward the accuser. So that as long as the accuser, um, previously it was preponderance of evidence, then the accused would be found liable. And now what we see is that schools have the right to decide whether they want to follow this preponderance of evidence or a higher standard, which is clear and convincing evidence. And that sounds kind of jargony and may seem like a subtle difference, but the effects of it are really profound. So it basically puts the burden on the accuser to demonstrate the, the quote is a highly and substantially, that it is highly and substantially more probable to be true than not. So it's a much higher burden of proof that the person that is accusing has to meet. Um, the new policy also requires that schools create space for direct cross-examination of both parties, which is something that was discouraged under the Obama-era guidelines because it was seen as potentially intimidating or traumatizing victims of assault. It changes what counts as assault. So instead of 
again, this this dear colleague letter that was issued in in 2011 said that the general definition was unwelcome conduct of sexual nature. And now it is this really specific definition. The the language that came out of DeVos's um, guidelines was unwelcome conduct that a reasonable person would determine is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it denies a person access to the school's education or activity. So there's this real profound shift in language and a much more narrow definition of this this sexual misconduct. Um, DeVos is... The last point, and it's an important one, is that her guidelines make it harder for schools to be found as legally re- responsible, because now it says that schools must have actual knowledge rather than um, that they reasonably should have known. That you know, under the Obama guidelines, if a school should have known something was going on, but for whatever reason, like didn't take the steps to figure it out, the school could be liable. But here a school will only be found liable if they had actual knowledge and, and this is an important one for kind of the context of the world we're in now, only help be held responsible for incidents that happen on school property or at school-sponsored events. Um, so yeah, all of this kind of has the effect of shifting that balance from believing, kind of baseline believing the accuser to baseline presumption of innocence. And we believe that the American Civil Liberties Union has already filed a lawsuit to challenge the new regulation in court, and the National Women's Law Center has expressed an intention to take legal action. Given that we're also in the midst of a pandemic and most school campuses are closed, do you think that this new rule will actually go into effect in August? I think that it's impossible to foretell what's going to happen four months from now. But a lot of this will depend on what the Maryland District Court, which is where the ACLU filed, how they rule. Um, I think either way, this case will kind of wend its way through the federal court system and will reach the Supreme Court. But in the interim, the question will be if the court decides to grant injunctive relief, so it says like, no, this law will not go into effect, or if the court lets it slide until it gets up to the the Supreme Court. The question to me in, in your question that's more interesting is what remote education does to these guidelines. Because we don't have a definition for on-campus, right? And so if these guidelines limit responsibility to infractions that take place on campus, like what does that mean as universities turn virtual? Um, How do we define on-campus if everyone's at home? Does harassment in a breakout room on Zoom constitute on campus? Does like an interaction between students at a private apartment because there's no campus to go to constitute harassment. I just I think these are pretty like significant questions that are, have not been tapped at all. Switching gears back to the athletic side of Title IX that most of our listeners are probably a little more familiar with, you are an assistant professor of history at Keene University in New Jersey, and you've co-authored a book called Changing the Game, Title IX, Gender and College Athletics. As a history professor, we can imagine there are nearly endless topics you could probably be writing about. Why did you choose this subject? So this book, Changing the Game, kind of sits at the intersections of a lot of different parts of my work um, and my life. Um, So I went to graduate school for law and history. And in both places, I studied post-World War II movements for justice in the United States. Um, And most of that focused on racial and economic justice. But I had these amazing opportunities to work with faculty in both the law school and the graduate school on questions of gender equity. Um, So that has kind of always been 
a part of this, my kind of thinking as I do my work. And also my mom was like a radical feminist. So I grew up with that, you know, in my life. Um, a lot of my work as a professor also focuses on innovative and immersive pedagogy or teaching methods. And this book is part of a, a series and a methodology called Reacting to the Past. Um, Reacting was developed at Barnard College in the mid-90s, and it takes students and throws them into a moment of great change in the world. And it, it's basically this elaborate role-playing exercise. Um, so rather than reading about history in a textbook or talking about you know, why did this happen this way? It gives students roles and victory objectives and asks them to become historical actors, asks, asks them to take on the role of those actually making the, the history happen um, while still doing everything we want them to do in a class, right? Writing papers, making arguments, doing research. Um, so this game, or I'm sorry, this book is one of these role-playing games. Um, and it was born out of a conversation at a conference um, in 2012 or 2013, where Kelly McFall, my co-author, gave a presentation on this like really small nugget of an idea um, to develop a module based on, not about the passage of Title IX, but about its implementation. Kelly and I met at a conference and he presented this idea about setting a game in the mid 90s, kind of Title IX has been passed already, it's 20 years on the books, but how are schools negotiating its, its implementation? How are they balancing budgets while also trying to increase uh, uh, athletic opportunities for women on campus. Um, so he and I chatted and he invited me to be a collaborator and we realized very quickly that we both kind of brought different experiences and expertise to the project. So we've been working on it together ever since. And Abby, your book provides a brief history of women's sports and we were surprised to read that the first US, US women's intercollegiate athletic, athletic event was actually a Stanford-Berkeley basketball game in 1896. So Title IX, often seen as the catalyst for women's collegiate athletics, wasn't signed into law until 1972. So what happened in those years between 1896 and 1972 that required the need for legislation? Yeah, so this basketball game was kind of the pinnacle of a few different movements coming together. There was this kind of explosion of technological change, which allowed for things like, like frankly, women's clothing change to give women more, more comfort in movement. And um, bicycles were then made to allow women more, more mobility. Um, Susan B. Anthony has this amazing quote where she, she essentially ties women's liberation to the advent of the bicycle, saying the ability for them to move is just, you know, transformative. Um, and also we see like the, the movement away from Victorian values and kind of like moral um, austerity. So all of these things coalesce to create the basketball, this basketball game. And it's seen as like this really important moment of potential. And almost immediately critics start to, you know, pound on. You know, they say that competition is going to corrupt women's purity, that it's going to compromise their femininity, that their health will be jeopardized, that they may not be able to have kids, that they charge these women with, like, threatening family structures. They say all female athletes are, are um, lesbians. I'm not actually sure if that's the language that existed in the early 20th century, but they accuse them of homosexuality, of radicalism. Um, and three years later, literally three years after this basketball game, Stanford cancels its women's basketball program. Um, and they say they do this, quote, for the good of students' health. 
And this continues through kind of the early 30s. And then we see the Depression followed immediately by World War II, which really changes the landscape of gender in the country. You know, the Depression forces the destabilization of gender roles because many men are out of work and women are able to enter the public sphere in new ways. We see men going off and entering the military in World War II and women coming in to fill that void, for instance, with the All-American Girls Baseball League. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with League of Their Own, um, the movie that kind of chronicles that. At the end of World War II, all of a sudden the country's at this like strategic pivot. And with the beginning of the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviets are both trying to vie for power across the globe. And President Truman realizes that there's a strategic advantage in pursuing an agenda of, in, in this moment, racial progress to kind of show that if the United States is fulfilling its democratic promise through civil rights, non-allied nations in like Asia and Africa and Latin America should see that as um, a good, better alternative to communism. And so this expansion of racial progress gradually leads to efforts toward gender equality. And so we really see kind of the late 60s, early 70s, this movement toward second wave feminism. Title IX becomes one of the focus points of that movement that coalesces. So when a college cuts a men's athletic program, Title IX is often cited as a reason for the cut. Is that true? (laughs) This is like the elephant in the room with Title IX, right? Um, The answer is no, and it's also yes. Um, Universities are required by law to comply with Title IX, and the ways to satisfy that are really murky, and they're really hard to kind of parse out, and courts have been trying to do that since the law was passed. Um, Is it okay if I kind of take you through the standards for how Title IX is adjudicated? Yes, that sounds... Very briefly. We'd love to hear that. Um, So... In 1979, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare lays out this interpretation of the law, and they say there's a three-part test to verify Title IX compliance. They say a school must meet one of these three standards. So the first one is that the number of athletes from each gender at at a school should be roughly equivalent to enrollment percentages. So if your school is like 60-40 men to women, your athletics should be 60-40 men to women. or a school must demonstrate a history and continuing practice of expanding athletic opportunities for, they say the underrepresented sex, most commonly that's women. Or a school must show that the interests and abilities of female athletes are being fully and effectively accommodated. So you're meeting the needs of the people that are expressing interest. These are really hard to measure. And so schools have been trying to find these creative workarounds at a time when you know, they have their budgets that are defined and set. And so they're working within a limited number of resources to, to make themselves compliant, to create opportunities for women. The critical point in this, which is kind of often glossed over in some of these conversations, is that football takes up so many of the resources at many institutions. And football is, you know, considered generally a single gender sport. So it creates situations where schools need to think about how to provide evidence of this overall proportionate representation when they're still earmarking the lion's share of their budget to one male-dominated sport. 
some people have argued that this approach decreases opportunities for male athletes, specifically in non-revenue generating sports. And they cite, as you're saying, the elimination of men's like wrestling programs and tennis and gymnastics and swimming as evidence of this. The federal courts actually ruled on this question in 2004 when they said this, there was a lawsuit from a number of wrestling programs at various universities saying that Title IX was unconstitutional. And the, school dis- the, the courts dismissed the case. They said that just because a school is cutting your wrestling program does not inherently mean the law is unconstitutional and it's the burden of the school to figure out how to effectively accommodate the law while still, you know, in many cases, prioritizing football. And so I think you just answered this, but I'm going to ask you this question just to drive it home because I feel like I'm a little rusty in my note-taking skills since it's <laughs> been many years since I've been in college and this is like testing my ability to, to really be on it with this. Um, so it sounds like then Title IX does not require schools. Like it has, it sounds like almost there's no like hard requirements, really. It's a, a little bit nebulous in some of these things to have an equal number of male and female athletes and spend an equal number of resources and money on athletic teams for each gender. That would be something that it doesn't have like a hard requirement for. Yeah. So theoretically the courts or or schools can meet title nine compliance under any of those three prongs. So they could show evidence that they're making inroads and they could show that like only 12% of their female students are interested in athletics. So they're meeting their needs. Um, in reality, courts rarely rule that a school has met Title IX compliance under those second and third prongs. So most schools try to meet that proportional definition in prong one. Um, it's still, as you said, nebulous. Like there's no hard and fast rule, which is why Title IX has been in the courts since its passage in 1972. Um, the, the, one of the things that the courts have tried to determine is like where the money comes from, right? So it, is it enough just to say that, okay, you, you know, your boosters and your donors have, have provided funds to have you know, a women's swimming team, so you're good, or does it have to come out of the university budget? Those kinds of questions um, courts have answered over the years, and sometimes they go back and forth on that. And do you know anything about how, like, has anyone, or do you know if they've tried to like prove, I don't know, proving interest seems like the hardest thing in the world to do in this like case, especially from, you know, like making the argument of sometimes people aren't interested because it hasn't been an option, right? Or they don't, don't know that it might become an option. And like, how, how do they even go about discussing that? Like, that just seems so hard to talk about <laughs> as I'm yeah. like struggling for words around it. Right. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Schools say, you know, well, we've, we've surveyed all of our students. And so we're able to tell based on our current student population or schools that, you know, go to the next step. They say, well, we surveyed all of our alums. And so we know what they are interested in, but you're absolutely right. Like students don't know what they might want if it's not there. And even more like, what about people who didn't come to the school because they didn't have those programs? So there's no really sound way of measuring interest, um, at least. And that's partly, you know, why courts have kind of said that that prong doesn't hold a whole lot of weight. So given that everything is a little gray in all of this, but how does the federal (laughs) government police schools for Title IX compliance? And what happens if a school is found out of compliance? So you have to have a proactive legal case in order for 
the federal courts to decide whether a school is in compliance. So that enforcement mechanism falls on the people that are in, um, accusing the school of noncompliance. They have to take that step to file a lawsuit, and only then will the federal court system consider whether there's been a violation. If a violation is found, theoretically, the federal government could pull funding from the school until it meets compliance. My understanding is that while many schools across the country are in violation of Title IX in some way all the time, um, no school has ever had actual federal funding pulled. They have had to pay legal fees, they have had to pay damages, um, but my, my understanding is that no school has actually had federal dollars taken away. And so this question might go beyond the scope of Title IX itself, but we've seen recent news reports about the possibility of student athletes returning to campus this fall while their classmates continue online learning, presumably allowing for a fall football season, even if games are played in empty stadiums. This news comes after California passed the Fair Pay-to-Play Act, which would allow student-athletes in California to acquire sponsorships while maintaining college eligibility as soon as 2023. As someone who has studied the history of collegiate athletics, how do you feel about those possible changes to the system? Yeah, so these debates go back a long way. They kind of go back as far as we have had organized collegiate sports in the country. So in a 1929 report, um, the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching warned that college sports programs had transformed from amateur competition to, quote, highly profitable enterprises. And the president of the organization really saw this as a fundamental flaw. He said, and I'm going to quote him, he said, college sports have been developed from games played by boys for pleasure into systematic professionalized athletic contests for the glory and too often the financial profit of the college. And they said that it's really detracting from the academic experience, from the cultural, from the social experience that these students were having. By the time we get, you know, I'm going to jump 70 years, by the time we get to the mid-90s, we have all of these accusations, right? We have Marcus Camby, who's the star um, of the UMass basketball team. They were NCAA champions, and it turns out that he's taking cash and gifts from a prospective agent. We have Stephen Smith, who was a star basketball player at Arizona State, who was found guilty of shaving points in a game to get payments from gamblers. Um, Ted Bozeman, who is the youngest coach ever to take a team to the Sweet 16, paid recruits to play for him. So we have all of these instances where players in some way are getting compensated for their work. I think there's real value to some of those arguments that student athletes are, you know, schools are making a lot of money on their backs and they're taking a lot of risk in playing especially contact sports um, for their long-term health. I think it's interesting, you know, Bernie Sanders supported this and plenty of folks on the other side of the political aisle supported this. So there is some kind of underground consensus that this is this move that California made is the right one. I do have some concerns about the law and that'll, that it will um, kind of exacerbate the inequalities that already exist between revenue generating or perceived revenue generating. In fact, football, football does not make nearly as much money often as people think it does. Um, and those that don't bring in more dollars. So I think that we might see resources being drawn away from sports that are already out of the spotlight and kind of magnifying some of the inequities that exist in college sports, which, which often do fall on gender lines. Um, so I think we may see some additional Title IX um, debates stemming from this. 
And Abby, we talked to you last fall as the co-founder of Rootstock Racing, a nonprofit that hosts adventure-based adventure-based events in Eastern Pennsylvania. How are you in the adventure racing community handling the challenges of the pandemic? Oh, now I get to take off my academic hat and put on my race <laughs> hat. This is fun. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, you guys know this about triathlon and running like most sports in the country, our season is on hold. Um, so events have been canceled through throughout the entire country, throughout the world, um, here in the mid Atlantic, I don't know of any race that's planning to go at least through late July. Um, at Rootstock, we've canceled all of our events through September. We have one event we may run in October, kind of depending on what the world looks like at that point. Um, event racing is kind of a funny sport in that our events at the regional level rarely have more than 100 people because of the navigation aspect of it. Everyone's really spread out. So like rarely are you in proximity with more than a handful of people at a time. And our governing bodies, the U.S. Adventure Racing Association and the Adventure Racing Cooperative, have worked together to lay out some recommendations for folks to follow if they do want to host events. But, you know, at the same time, just like triathlon, just like marathoning, like our sport requires people to travel. It requires people to stop for gas or food to cross state lines. And so it creates risks of exposure and transmission. And until that can be mitigated, I don't really know when we will open up in a broad sense. I think the big conversation right now is whether um, in the U.S. we're going to have the national championship, which is set for September in, um, in Wisconsin. Um, so are people going to be able to travel to Wisconsin? And it's just, it feels really far away to make that decision. But I also think we need to start thinking about that decision. And Abby, Rootstock Racing put on a virtual event called The Lockdown, which is like a virtual style of adventure racing. And... So I, I believe that you um, and your husband, Brent, who also is a, the other co-founder of Rootstock Racing, both participated in the event yourselves, right? So how was it to like finally, I mean, you guys, I guess, don't normally get to do your own adventure races, right? No, we kept saying this is our first Rootstock race. <laughs> you know, the company's been alive for five years and this is the first one we actually got to participate in. Were you like, maybe these are really harder than we thought? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we've participated in like hundreds collectively of adventure races around the world. But I think that, you know, participating in the ones that have your own flavor and your own flair is a little bit of a wake up call. Um, I, I also it's been interesting, like Brent did it before I did. So the lockdown is um, a virtual adventure race. We were kind of inspired by um, we both did, oh, Alyssa, what's the one that you just did? The, the Yeti Challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we you both did that a couple weeks before I did, I think. Right. And I just like, I, it was like transformative. It was amazing. I ended up, you know, it was this 30 mile race. I ended up doing 50 miles because I just didn't want it to end. I, the distraction of it, just like in this moment of so much uncertainty and upheaval, it was amazing to focus on just running for, for a day. Um, so we were like, how can we translate that to the adventure racing community? And so we created this event. It's You have 96 hours. So you have four days to complete 21 hours of activity. Um, and each stage is designated in terms of duration. And then there's some check, quote unquote, checkpoints that you have to find. So like visit a gravestone or visit a coffee shop or whatever. Um, and then the navigation piece comes in in that we had everybody collect 10 geocaches 
across the duration of their race. Um, and I know you've been doing some geocaching practice, um, so we can commiserate about that. Brent adores geocaching. He does it with our daughter. I find it maddening. Um, it's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> it's basically, for our listeners, if you don't know what geocaching is, I mean, I could be, I didn't read a lot of the rules, I guess, about it or about it before I started going out. But basically, you, you know, get the app, you log in on your phone, you do all that stuff. And then you have all these points, like it's like secret hidden treasures around where you are, or where you're going in these areas you can look up and on the map. And so I was like, oh my gosh, there's like all of these all around me on these trails. I'm always running in these places. I'm always walking Ramona and everything. So I get to like the little, I just follow my phone dot on the map of the geocache and I'm in the right spot. I think, you know, I mean, I know the phone GPS like has error built in and then you just, sometimes you might have an additional clue from there, but a lot of times you don't. And so you're just standing in the middle of the woods sometimes, like literally looking up, looking down. I mean, you don't even know what you're looking for sometimes. And it's just like, you're kicking leaves around, like lifting some <laughs> logs up. I, and I, I literally haven't done it enough successfully to know even what, cause sometimes it'll say it's a typical geocaching container. And I'm like, gosh, I need to like go back 10 steps because I don't even know what that looks like. Like I need a lot of help with geocaching. (laughs) Are there geocaching clubs? Because I feel like I've seen people like in groups, like looking at their phones and I was always wondering what they were doing. Is that what they were doing? Maybe here in Bozeman? There might be. I don't know. I, there definitely could be. Um, It's definitely like there's a culture to it and there's etiquette and all of this stuff that I have had to learn through doing the lockdown. Um, but it's so random. Like, I so, so I did my lockdown the la- last week, and and twice geocaching made me cry. Uh, <laughs> is this lockdown? This virtual adventure race? Can anyone anywhere in the world do it? Yeah, we have. So we have like forty six states represented, um, and then we have folks from England, Canada, uh, Netherlands, I think, Germany, Finland. Um, Japan, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand. So we, it's kind of slowly trickling, trickling around the globe. Um, we have, I think as of today, 357 people registered. Um, and you have to register by May 31st, but then you can complete it all the way through uh, June 30th. Um, but, you know, my husband is a phenomenal navigator and I would put him up against many of the best navigators in the country. And I found a geocache that he did not. Um, which kind of proves the randomness of it. (laughs) I love it. Well, Abby, thank you so much for coming back on the show and talking Title IX to us. We really appreciate that. And the update on adventure racing is fun too, but definitely appreciate your expertise on the Title IX side of things. And hopefully our listeners, I know that they have taken away something from our chat today. Yeah, thanks for having me and letting me kind of geek out on history for a little bit. triathlon is certainly hard on your skin without a doubt. That was Teresa Helsel, dermatologist PA and accomplished triathlete. Earlier this year, Teresa came on the podcast to offer skincare advice specific to triathletes. Teresa's two biggest tips were to avoid sunburn and chafing. And luckily, Iron Women podcast listeners get 15% off all Zelio skincare products, including Sun Barrier SPF 45 zinc-based sunscreen and Betwixt Athletic Skin Lubricant and Chamois Cream. Use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com for 15% off and use Zelios products to protect your skin during all your swim, bike, run fun. Haley, have you gone searching for any geocaches yet? 
Alyssa, you sent me a screenshot from the app of my neighborhood in Bozeman and it showed so many different geocaches and that was on my to-do list over the weekend to just go try to find one and I didn't quite get to it but we have until May 31st to at least sign up for the lockdown uh the rootstock racing virtual adventure race and then you have even longer to actually go find the geocaches right so they're not all hope is lost yes that's true so we will put the run sign up link for the lockdown if you want to check it out and sign up in our show notes and just a note as well all proceeds from the lockdown are going to COVID-19 relief funds Alyssa in addition to uh, to that great information, I do need to ask, did anyone write into our mailbag last week and ask for you to play the piano? Because we put through that out there. We had that little clip of that little. It was amazing. Incredible clip of Elizabeth Beisel playing the violin. And we asked our listeners if they wanted to hear you play the piano. Did anyone say yes? Haley, we had not a single request for my piano playing skills. So now you guys are just missing out. So, I mean... I'll consider it if someone still sends in a request, but my feelings are like maybe a little, I'm a little disappointed. I don't know. Well, maybe I'll like uh, get another, a new like secret account and it'll be like not Haley Chura at gmail.com wants to hear Alyssa play the piano. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll hold out for another week and Alyssa have a great one. And I hope to talk to you next week and maybe I'll have better geocaching news. Bye Haley. You have been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Live Feisty Media and is edited by Taylor Mahan Rudolph. Thank you to our sponsors, Zilio Skincare, Noon Hydration, Form Swim Goggles, and Orca Sportswear, as well as the Live Feisty Patreon community. You can find websites and discount codes in our show notes or at ironwomenpodcast.com. <laughs>